This is Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone. This is our 90th episode uh, of Rumble. And I'm, uh, first of all, very, very happy uh, and um, proud of all of you who've been out there in the streets across this country, across the world, uh, making your voices heard here in the last couple of weeks. Um, So many thanks. Keep it up. The pressure must not be taken off those who need to listen and need to change. Um, So thank you, all of you, for that. And thank you for joining me today. And uh, I'm here uh, with a uh, a very special guest, um, individual who um, has studied this problem of policing uh, for some time. He's a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the author of the book, The End of Policing. Um, We'll wait for the applause to die down on just the title of that book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Please welcome uh, to Rumble, uh, uh, Mr. Alex Vitale. Alex, thank you so much for uh, being on this episode today. Oh, Michael, it's just such a pleasure. Thank you. So why why don't I just turn this over to you and explain, start with the title and what your... For now, you're essentially your life's work is and what it what is it has been about, because we need your thinking on this now more than ever. Well, thanks, Michael. And, and, you know, I'm just so thrilled to have an opportunity to explain this life's work. But it's it's not a unique perspective. You know, I feel that I'm I'm part of this movement, that I'm connected to the people on the ground doing this work and. And while I'm very glad to be with you, we, we do have people like Patrice Cullors and Derricka Purnell and Andrea Ritchie who, who also have really important things to say about this work. But, but I'll tell you a little bit about how I got into this and, and, and why, you know, I've been thinking about these things the way I have. You know, I started working at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness in 1990. I, I thought I was going to have a career in kind of urban public policy. And this was the period, though, when the mass criminalization of homelessness began to pick up. And my boss asked me to look into that. And that turned out to be the beginnings of what we now call broken windows policing, which was the use of police to manage unaddressed social problems. It it became clear very quickly that the city of San Francisco had given up on the possibility of actually housing people and decided to just turn it over to the police to manage, to break up in people's encampments, to drive them out of public spaces, to prevent them from panhandling in front of businesses. And that, that was a lesson that has stuck with me ever since, that whenever we see a problem turned over to the police, we should be looking for the political failure that underlies it. And really, we've got a lot of bipartisan political failures that are staring us in the face right now that have been turned over to the police to manage. Mass untreated mental illness, mass opioid overdoses, mass economic precarity that drives people into black markets of drugs and sex work and stolen property. And, and instead of addressing any of, the, any of these underlying problems, we, they've just turned it over to the police to manage. And the tools the police have to manage social problems are tools of violence and a long history of producing race and class inequality in our society so that 
anytime we turn a problem over to them, we're, we're inviting that legacy of, of racially motivated violence into our lives. And so the demand of the book, like the demand of the movement, is to find every possible way to get them out of our lives and to produce safety in ways that really lift communities and people up, not criminalize them. What you just said, I mean, that just kind of makes common sense in a way, right? Because really the last people you ever want to have to call in your life are the police. And I would think most police... Um, the last thing they want to do is have to show up in a situation where they may be confronted with violence or have to deal with a situation that's out of control or whatever. So, uh, you know, if we start with that, that concept, it seems like, like even this week, I've noticed some police chiefs have, they, you know, they, they cringe at the idea of when they hear defund the police, but some of them have been more than willing to admit that they actually don't like to be a Swiss army knife where they have to do nine different things that, and they're only really trained to do two. Um, and all the other things that when we call nine one one and nine one one has no other way, our system, our society, we don't have, we don't, we haven't built a way to deal with um, if somebody's calling because of a mental health issue or because of a, a drug addiction or because of, you know, any of a number of things that don't require a badge and a gun to fix the problem. Is that sort of what you're saying here? I mean, that's, that's like the opening salvo here, which is to say that we, we're asking police to do too much. And, and, and you're quite right. There's this moment when David Brown, who used to be uh, the police chief in Dallas, spoke out in, after the death of the officers in Dallas several years ago. And he said, the city of Dallas is asking us to do too much. The schools don't work. They put us in the schools. There's no mental health service. They put us in charge of mental health services. That We got a loose dog problem in Dallas. Now they want us to chase loose dogs. This doesn't make sense. But the analysis has to go deeper than that, right? It's not just about... So yeah, where do you take it? Where do you take it from there? Yeah, well, so it's got to be about interrogating every little thing that we've asked the police to do and asking whether or not there's a better way to address that. Because really, this is a movement about creating safety for people. The, the leaders of this movement on the ground are people who have been left out of safety, who have been victimized, and for whom policing has not been the solution to their problem. Sometimes it has been their problem. And what they're demanding is real strategies for safety, community-based targeted interventions to deal with domestic violence and gang violence and, you know, uh, public behavior that is disruptive, et cetera. We can come up with strategies to address these things that don't rely on armed police. So let's say you're the, you're the mayor of Minneapolis, you're the mayor of New York, you're the mayor of LA, whatever. And, and the city council has given you uh, the power. They voted to say, you know, Alex, um, you're right. We need to fix this. This really doesn't seem to be working. C can, you, can you walk us through um, exactly what that police department might look like after Alex Vitale would have <laughs> have his, uh, his way. They with. have reached out to me actually. Oh, okay. oh good. They <laughs> have reached out to me. So, uh, so, 
So here's the thing, and I think they're, if they follow through, I think they're on the right track here, which is that it's not up to Alex Vitale. I don't live in those communities. I don't know the specific challenges that they face. They need to consult with the different communities in Minneapolis, and I have spent time in Minneapolis in some of these communities talking to people about these issues. They have different problems. Some of them have a youth violence problem. Some of them have an opioid overdose problem. Some of them have failing schools where there is disruption to the education of their children happening. And they need to identify those problems and then look at the long lists of examples we have of alternative ways of managing those problems and demand that we use those solutions rather than police. So some of the examples of things that have been done, right? Instead of filling our schools with armed police, let's bring back counselors and social workers. Let's put back those extracurricular activities that help students feel invested in their education. Let's look at high quality restorative justice programs that involve students in the co-production of a safe and successful learning environment instead of criminalizing our children. I read here in the, in your book where you said that because, you know, the more moderate centrist view right now is what we just need is some reform here, Alex. We just need to figure out how to reform the, we don't want to get rid of the police, we just want to reform it so they don't lynch uh, black men in the street with the knee to the neck. Um, so how can we just reform? And, and you point out in the book, we've tried reform. We're way beyond that. There are so many examples over the last 20 or 30 years where one city after another has tried to institute reforms only to find ourselves in the same kind of rotten state that we're in. This. Explain what you mean by that in terms of the idea of reform is now in the year 2020, not the street we need to be on. My friend Naomi Murakawa wrote a book called The First Civil Right that, that goes back to the efforts to, to reform policing in the 50s and 60s. And, and it's the same nonsense. It's this idea that if we can just get the police to be neutral professional enforcers of the law, that this will automatically benefit everyone equally, that this is what will create a better society. But this completely misunderstands the legal order that the police have been sent to enforce. The drug war, for instance, is by design a racist project. When it was created by the Nixon administration, it was done so to demonize and criminalize his political enemies and to appeal to white voters to get them to switch from the Democratic Party that had supported civil rights to the Republican Party. So we don't need narcotics units to get anti-bias training to address these deep racial disparities in policing. We need to get rid of the war on drugs. That legal framework is inherently unjust. And all these superficial procedural reforms like implicit bias training and police community encounter sessions and, and even things like body cameras are designed to restore trust to policing when instead we need to get the police out of our lives in every way possible. 
is that possible? <laughs> I mean, I, it, it. Well, so it's a matter of degree. We start, we start with the things where we have strong evidence about alternatives that work. We start by getting them out of the schools. We start by getting them out of the mental health business. We start by getting them out of the drug business. We look to decriminalize sex work to shut down these corrupt and abusive vice units. We look at the success that community-based violence interruption programs have had in reducing shootings and reducing homicides. And little by little, we make the argument. We establish a new logic that says that government should be helping people, not putting them in cages. I mean, that makes sense to me. It makes sense to you. But, you know, we're dealing with, when I say people, I mean white people. We're dealing with a lot of white people here who don't even want this conversation to take place. Um, they, they liked the idea of feeling safe and secure as long as the police were out there taking care of them. Um, and what I say to people when I have this disagreement um, with uh, fellow uh, people of um, my skin pigmentation, that you don't, you're not making yourself any safer by allowing the conditions that exist right now to continue. And I'm not talking about just the conditions in terms of how the police behave, but all the other societal things. And you talk about this, you know, in your book that if we don't, if we don't deal with issues of housing and jobs, uh, income inequality, et cetera, et cetera, we'll never get this fixed. We'll never, we'll, we'll never really come to grips with what we call the public safety. As long as we allow so many millions of our, fellow citizens to suffer. You know, the, the, the violence and the abuse of policing is, is heavily concentrated, right, in communities of color and folks in vulnerable situations who are homeless. But that is just the expression of a system that says we can't have national health insurance. We can't have decent housing. We can't have economic security. And that affects all of us. And policing has just been a tool to allow that system to keep rolling right along. And anyone who says the solution to that is to make police friendlier is allowing that system of inequality and exploitation to just keep plugging along. They, they are, those people are not our friends. They are undermining our movement. So you're saying that um, uh, when police officers are uh, nice to kids at the protest marches or they take a knee or whatever that that's not enough uh, or that we shouldn't be, we, we shouldn't really settle just for that because I don't mean to sound cynical about this. And I'm grateful to every officer who does have a heart and a conscience and who has seen um, uh, the wrong of all of this. But nonetheless, Alex, this is how we have been fooled and um, put off in the past where um, certain platitudes are made and enough so-called good cops come forward. And then everybody, everybody, again, when I say everybody, when I say things like this, I'm talking about white people, relax, they relax. And, and we go back to believing the police are going to do the job that, that really what they're, what they've always what their job really has always been is to protect the rich, to protect people with money, to protect property, to protect 
the haves from the have-nots because the haves, the haves have always known that sooner or later, the have-nots will not be happy with their situation and are going to come and demand fairness and equality and their slice of the pie. And that's why they created police. And that's when we want to make sure the police are around. Yeah, exactly. There's a famous 19th century saying that the law and its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, begging in the streets, and stealing bread. The rich don't need to do those things. (laughs) You know, that the, that the, the neutral application of those laws only fall on the necks of poor people. To allow rich people to keep right. the stuff that they've stolen from us in the first place. What is it? What is it that um, people uh, who are not poor, people who are not black? What is it? I, I think I can. I mean, I'm probably we've already seen the answer to this. I think from if you just listen now to white people who suddenly are like, "Oh, I figured this out," or "I didn't realize this," or whatever. And again, I don't mean to mock that. I'm 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 for when anyone is ready to make the change, to open their eyes, to be good and decent and have a heart um, and realize that maybe the way you've viewed the world hasn't been quite right for a long time. That if now you do, thank you. And everyone is grateful and let's work together, you know, to, to, to create something better. Um, But I guess, you know, there's a piece of me that's just afraid that I don't want to lose this moment. I don't, I think this is a moment that we can see real change take place and, um, and that we won't be, we won't be put off by some fake promises or, uh, 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 symbolic legislation, um, take down a statue or two, take down the Confederate flag, you know, all wonderful things, but, um, but the real job that has to be done is first we have to stop the harm, the killing that, that's committed on the on the part of law enforcement, and then we have to fix all these other things that, that we've been talking about. Do you think that our fellow citizens are going to be in this for the long haul? Look, we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, th- this movement didn't just emerge two weeks ago. It was on happening on the ground all over the country. You know, I, I've been crisscrossing the country for three years now in, in 25 cities a year, working to support these movements, learning from them. So this is not going to evaporate. It's, it's a growing movement, but it needs help. It needs to become more powerful. We need the opportunity to make our place on the ground in neighborhoods to convince people that that we have real ways to make them safer than relying on police. And also, we have to make this about the political direction of the country. The fact that neither political party has even the beginning of a plan to deal with mass homelessness, that neither political party thinks that we should have universal health care. I mean, these are fundamental inequalities that have been allowed to fester and have been papered over by policing. And so my hope is now that that we see we we can't get Medicare for all while we have a police state. We can't achieve racial justice 
while we give SWAT teams more tanks to roll around in. That these things are interconnected, that, that neoliberal systems of generating inequality rely on mass incarceration and intensive and invasive policing. And we need to bring those movements together. Joe Biden, um, if he's listening right now and, or and his he wants advisors. to talk to you, or his advisors, they want to talk to you, um, you know, here's a Democrat who has said that he's not in favor of universal health care, Medicare for all. He's um, he is in part responsible for the mass incarceration movement that began under a Democratic administration in the 90s, not his, uh, but um, was continued. And um, and when he was in the Senate, the crime, his crime bill, the crime bill. Um, did cause a lot of this uh, damage. And um, so what would you say to him? How would you, how would you explain this? Because uh, again, if I can continue to be an optimist for just a few more minutes, um, let's say he's willing to listen, make the case for, and how you connect uh, Medicare for all to the issue of crime and policing and, um, poverty and, and, and how we have to, we have to create a better system. And I know, I don't think, I think a lot of us, I've said this before on the podcast during this pandemic, we've had three months to think about the world we want to live in, how we want to come out of this pandemic. It, here is the moment to make some changes. Here is an individual who may be president of the United States in January. Um, if you could have a hand in in drawing these connections and explaining how we can do this and, and not having it sound like it's just some kind of pie in the sky, let me hear. Let me hear. Yeah, let's let's talk about two specific things that are directly related to this issue of healthcare. One is the problem of mental health treatment. When we closed down the state mental hospitals, which were often horrible institutions, we were told that we were going to produce community-based health care services for folks so that they could live independently. But instead, people were given a bottle of pills and put out on their own with no follow-up care, with no access to ongoing services. And so that when they have a crisis and someone calls 911 looking for help, they get an armed police response. And between a quarter and a half of all people mm -hmm. killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis. They need medical help. They do not need armed police. Let's look at the opioid overdose crisis. Right? That, is, that crisis was produced by a failed for-profit medical system that preyed upon people's physical and emotional pain for profit. There is no part of this country that has medicalized drug treatment available on demand. And every part of this country has narcotics policing available on demand. And this is about a totally misguided set of political priorities. We need high quality medical interventions for these folks, not more policing and incarceration. And the response of too many people has been to the opioid crisis, 
Let's let the police handle it. Let's criminalize the people who provide them the drugs, even though that's the same people using the drugs. They're using drugs together, and now we're going to charge them with murder. You know, this is just more mass incarceration, more criminalization, and no one's being helped. Are there countries that have figured this out or have, are attempting to figure it out in terms of when, when you're in uh, Australia or France or you know, I don't know where, I don't know anybody, I don't, I don't, you probably sure. know. Sure. Where when you call their version of 911 and, and they instantly know, just like if they call 911 and, and say they've got a, a grease fire on the oven in their kitchen, the 911 operator doesn't think, oh, let's send the cops. Or <laughs> if they, if they say, you know, uh, my, uh, you know, uh, my grandfather's had a heart attack. Oh, you know what he needs? A badge and a gun. Um, no, they don't send the cops for these things. But there's all these other things they do. And it seems like has anybody elsewhere figured out a way to where that operator goes, oh, we need to send in the mental health people. Oh, we need to send the drug addiction people in, the alcohol addiction people in. Yes. Is there? Are, are, we, alone, are we alone in having to figure this out? Not totally alone. No, because we do have examples we can full point to. There's no perfect place out there, but let's look at like Portugal. Portugal has decriminalized all drugs, gotten rid of the narcotics units, and handed the problem over to the public health authorities. Overdoses have gone down. HIV infection rates have gone down. And civilization has not collapsed. Drug use rates did not increase. Public disorder did not increase. They are very happy with this decision. In the rest of Europe, no one has ever heard of school policing. When you tell them what we do here, they think we're nuts. You mean you don't have a, they, don't have a, they don't have school cops? No. They don't have sc- really? Yeah, they don't have school cops. No, there are no armed police in their schools. How do they keep the order? They treat the kids with some decent respect and, and mutual understanding, and they provide them with a high-quality education, you know. The, it's not perfect. And, yes, oh, there's man. disorderly behavior, but they don't throw kids in handcuffs, seven- and eight-year-olds like we do in the United States. Kids who have problems, they try to get to the root of the problem so that they can be successful learners, not drive them out because they're holding back the test scores. In the UK, if you have a mental health crisis, you call. You don't call 911. You call a number that's associated with the National Health Service, and you get a clinical response. And because they have National Health Service, there's a person in the dispatch room who has access to the medical records, who knows what the diagnosis is, what medication they're on, who their primary physician is. So that the people responding know what they're getting into. I read this week that uh, New York City has 1.1 million school children, and somewhere less than around only 500 uh, school psychologists, uh, uh, counselor types. I couldn't believe that statistic. 500 to handle to be available to 1.1 million school children. Did it? T- did it say how many? School police there are in New York? No, I, I don't. Do you know that number? There are over over five thousand. Oh my God! 
So 5,000 school cops, but 500 school psychologists. Yeah. And if we, oh, if we man. add in all you know, the social workers and all the guidance counselors, it, the whole, it, it's still only about 2,500 people, but we have 5,000 NYPD personnel in city schools. Hmm. <laughs> That's what we're up against. Also, I, and, th- and these are big city yeah. democratic mayors that are doing this to us. Right. Right. These are not Republicans doing this. These are generally Democrats. And uh, <clears throat> maybe they just don't get it. Maybe they don't understand it. I, but but I, when I saw that, again, for the first time, I did not realize that New York's police budget annually is $6 billion. $6 billion it's, for the city police force. It's bigger than the GDP <laughs> of 50 countries in the world. The entire GDP for 50 countries. Yes, there are 50 wow. countries with smaller GDPs than the NYPD budget. That, that, that don't have a $6 billion GDP. Wow. Yeah. Jeez, what is wrong with us? No, I'm serious. What is? Come on, we can do better than this. Nobody wants to live like this. Nobody wants to believe that they have that they have to their tax dollars have to go to essentially uh, mounting a, 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 a sizable army of well-equipped police uh, to keep the peace in New York City. It's a city where over a million people live in poverty, where the the majority of the school kids qualify for the school lunch program. To me, it just seems like, again, I'm not a sociologist. The common sense part of me just says, fix that. Fix that. 10% of all. The the majority of kids should not. 10% 10% of all school kids no, 10% ahead. of all school kids in New York City are homeless. 10%. Wait a minute. Okay, wait. Whoa, whoa. So that means well if there's a million school yep, kids. Ten, you're saying almost 100,000. That's right. They they are sleeping on people's couches. They're doubled up with friends. They're living in shelters. They're living in in temporary hotel rooms. Oh man. Yeah, it, if anybody who's listening to this right now from other countries around the world, just if you don't mind, just maybe put it on pause. Not just <laughs> this is, I don't want you to, I want you to like us. I know, I know we're, we're, we, we're good people, but you must, your head must just be spinning off your neck right now to think that, that the richest country on earth would allow for what Alex uh, just described. I just, I, I'm, I am, I'm embarrassed by it. And, um, and I'm enraged by it also. And I want to know what I can do and what the people listening to this can do. The American people who are listening to this, what they can do, uh, to turn this around right now, take us beyond the slogan of defund the police, take us beyond the title of your book, the end of policing. Okay. Yes. Well, okay. Now what, um, what do we do here? It can't just be you and I just, you know, being outraged. But there there is a movement underway and people can plug into it in in cities all across the country. Tell us what that movement is. Yeah, it's about going to budget hearings. It's about lobbying city council people. It's not not this abstract thing. We, We need to get 
specific dollar amounts out of policing and transferred into community identified services. And there was a hearing in Nashville the other day. They were going to take public testimony for an hour. So many people showed up that they had to hold the hearing until 5.30 the next morning with person after person telling their stories about why we need to cut the police budget and invest in communities. That's what this movement looks like. And we, we need people from all neighborhoods to be part of this movement, to lobby their city council member to say, we don't want our tax dollars being misspent on more Humvees and tear gas, on abusive vice units, on wars on gangs. We want that money spent on affordable housing and community mental health services and real after-school programs for young people that help them deal with the traumas in their lives and the lack of opportunity. I saw that council meeting on the news last week uh, where so many people showed up to speak. I've, and I've, in the past, I've seen meetings like that on the local news. Occasionally, occasionally, if so many people show up that they can't fit everybody in, there might be a, a a brief clip on the local news. But one thing you notice, the people, the citizens at these meetings are primarily, generally, are black and brown citizens. And and I wondered when I saw that last week, and that's not that there weren't any white people there, but but you re- I really want to say to to white people who are concerned about this, you need to show up. Even if it isn't a problem, so to speak, in your neighborhood, you need to show up for your neighbors, your fellow citizens of your city, of your school district or whatever. These meetings should be packed. They should go deep into the night. And, and, and it's, it's time for the white community to stand up for the black and the brown community in our cities here. It's, it's, if, 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 if you found yourself these last couple of weeks, thinking about your role in this rationalizing or trying to tell yourself, you know, well, I'm not a racist or I wouldn't do this such a thing. I don't support this or whatever. I think it, I think it needs more out of us. I think it needs, I think we have to show up, literally show up. Um, How do people, how does just the average citizen Alex find out when these meetings are being held? They must be published somewhere. There must be a way to look up and say, wouldn't, of course, there are websites that, that, that are required to list these public hearings, and people need to do a little research on social media, on the internet. Who's doing this organizing in their community? You know, who, Who's setting the example? Who's providing some leadership? Who's doing this work in the community? And, and there are groups like this all over the place, and if there aren't, then start one up. When you heard Minneapolis was going to, quote, dismantle their uh, police uh, department. Um, how did you feel? And what did that mean to you? What did, what did you think that it meant? Well, I was a little concerned because there, there, we've had some other attempts to dismantle and remake police forces that I think didn't go so well, that w- was just changing the personnel. But what, what I hear coming out of there now is this idea of spending time consulting with communities about their specific community safety needs and then to begin the process of figuring out what appropriate interventions could be put in place instead of policing 
And at the end of that process, shrinking the footprint of policing as much as we possibly can by putting those other institutional resources in place. And I think that's exactly what needs to be done all across the country. And I think we should be looking at, you know, 50% reductions in police budgets over the next five years and the shifting of those resources into community needs. Yeah. Yeah, when I look at police budgets and police functions, it's very easy to identify that and we we can mostly achieve that without a lot of layoffs. We can do some job transfers. We can use attrition and cuts to overtime and quit buying more surveillance and militarized equipment and pulling off those functions, shutting down the vice unit, shutting down the gang unit, shutting down the narcotics unit, getting the police out of schools. And then we keep working. We figure out what else, what else do we have a better alternative for? And once we reduce this, the police footprint, what does that footprint look like? Uh, You know, what, what is the job then that the police are going to do? And I'm assuming that we're also going to fix the way we hire police, the way we train police, the way we vet them. You know, I I love the idea of, of, of a racism review board. Um, essentially for the, for the white officers. Um, you know, I, I just, I, um, but let's, let's assume that we've, we've hired a, we've hired the right people. Now what's their footprint? What on the community, what, what is the footprint that doesn't look like a boot on the necks of the poor, uh, and, and people of color? So, so we don't know exactly what that will look like. I mean, what, what we know is that Police are violence workers. I mean, that's what distinguishes them from all other parts of government. So that anything that we can fix without violence, we should turn over to someone else, right? We don't need to make police into social workers. We need to hire social workers. We don't need to turn police into mental health clinicians. We need to hire mental health clinicians. So is there a need to defend us against, you know, bank robbers with body armor and machine guns? Yes, of course, there's going to need to be some capacity to deal with that. And we should understand that the agency that has that capacity has the potential to become a source of problems for us, right? When we give guns to people, when we train people to be violence workers, that represents a risk to the rest of us. So the controls that need to be in place, the oversight that needs to be operationalized, needs to be so strict so that they have very limited room to maneuver. And that's a little bit like what they do in the UK, where only a very small number of officers are allowed to carry weapons, and they are strictly regulated in what they do. Okay, so bank robbery, you mentioned that. What else? What else do, in our in our new world, uh, do we need armed uh, police or trained police some of whom have arms. What are the other? What are the other societal things that we actually do need the police for, as violence workers? Well, as as we've made all the efforts we can at preventative interventions, at resolving social problems. You know, when we're faced with violent or you know violent threats, then we may need some capacity to deal with this. 
there are also, you know, alternative models for thinking about a lot of that stuff too. Look, look at the coaches who've intervened in school shootings without guns and resolved those crises, right? Who've taken the, talked that kid out of it, taken that gun away from them, right? So we just, we have this assumption that, that, oh, well, there's violence. So then of course we need to send police, but that's, that's not really true necessarily. So so we don't know. We want to try, keep trying to chip away at this, and then we'll see what's left, and we'll keep working on that. So even with violence, there can be intervention by people who don't respond to violence or potential violence with more violence. Absolutely. The interrupters. Exactly. They've been tremendously successful, and we need more of them. We need to give them more resources. We need them in more communities, in different settings. Yeah. Do police prevent crimes? I've, I've been saying on, on my podcast here that generally it seems you call the police after the crime has been committed. Somebody's been shot. Your house has been broken into. Um, a car has run into another car. Um, it's, it, and then they show up. They show up and they are essentially the crime scene cleanup force. Uh, they roll out the yellow tape. They mark the evidence. Um, they either start to look for the bad guy or they've caught the bad guy and they start to do what they have to do to prepare to either, you know, then arrest him, take him, book him, all that stuff. But where I think wouldn't people be very happy to spend their tax dollars on anything that would prevent these things from happening in the first place to prevent the violence, to prevent uh, a situation from getting out of control. And what's, what's the, has there been any thinking on that in terms of how how we have a, a peace force that is uh, that is essentially a, they're a group of preventers? Yeah, I mean it's not one force though, right? It depends on the specific challenges that the community faces. Is it a problem of warring young people and and longstanding beefs? Is it a problem of domestic violence within a family? Is it a problem of on Friday nights, people get drunk and get into fights? These are all slightly different dynamics and need tailored approaches to address them. And there are examples all over the world of strategies to do exactly this. In, in Minneapolis, in fact, they had this kind of nightlife team that was unarmed, did not have arrest powers, that would hang out in these areas when, when the bars would empty out, and they would just talk to people. They had special training about how to de-escalate situations. They would sometimes call an ambulance if someone was injured or sick from drinking too much or whatever. And they didn't mobilize violence to solve this problem. They treated people with respect. They invested time in trying to figure out these problems rather than criminalizing them. I read last week that I think it was Norway where it's been like 10 years since, um, police have had had to shoot somebody um I, I may have the story wrong but i remember i was filming in iceland about five years ago and they had a similar situation where th their police had never actually killed anyone uh with a gun and they had a guy who went nuts i guess and took a hostage or two and um you know they they had to break into his apartment where he was holding whoever he was holding. And 
Uh, they came in and they, they, they didn't come in guns blazing. They were like, we don't want to fire these guns, please, you know, whatever. Anyways, it looked like somebody was going to get killed and one of the officers fired and, and shot the guy. And I saw the footage on the, we got, we got the footage from Icelandic TV of the police officer had a, had a breakdown because he'd shot somebody and wanted to apologize to the family, to his family. Um, because a gun had to be used to, to stop him. And it was, it was so profoundly moving to see the humanity of this police officer thinking that essentially he felt like he was a failure because if you have to use a gun, that means somehow we have not figured this out and we have failed and we should have been able to stop this without uh, killing this individual. Uh, It was really, it was like, and you wanted to say, no, no, okay. You know, you see the whole situation, you understand what happened. It was self-defense, et cetera. But still they operate from that, that they up the base position, the baseline position is we should never use these guns. We should always ha- have an alternative method or way to avoid using violence to fix the problem. And because violence had to be used, they felt like essentially they had failed. It was, it kind of blew my mind. You know, if we could get to a situation similar to that, right, where we've dialed back all this use of policing for everything under the sun. Then we could talk about a situation where we could use what some people call a kind of sentinel system, which is similar to how we respond to like an airplane crash. When an airplane crashes, there's an investigation. And even if no one was at fault, we want to find out what led to this and what could we possibly do to prevent this from ever happening again. We have to learn from this. We have to approach each use of violence as a failure of the system to be learned from rather than targeting some officer, throw him under the bus, and then the system just keeps right on rolling along. Now, we've been talking mostly about policing and how to rethink this uh, in the 21st century. And, um, but we, and we touched a little bit earlier on the fact that, that policing alone isn't going to ultimately fix these social problems um, that we have that are not necessarily, can be, they can be fixed actually, I, I think by different or better police. We have the best police in the world. And yet if people don't have food on the table, if they're being evicted by the landlord, if uh, they've lost their job in this pandemic and are not going to get it back, um, you know, just go down the whole list of things here. If somehow we don't fix the income inequality, we don't fix the job situation. We don't, we poor people continue to live in miserable housing situations. Um, ultimately, then we're not going to really fix the problem we're trying to fix. And Again, I can have podcast after podcast talking about how we're going to get Medicare for all, how we're going to fix these social problems. But, you know, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be putting this all on you. I mean, um, it's, you have focused on a very important aspect of, of what we're dealing with here, but, but I've read your stuff. So I, I know you have not separated 
the concept of policing and what policing should be from the other societal issues that we all have to commit to fix. Otherwise, we're just going to be going, it's a round robin and we're just, it's just, this will happen again and again and again. You know, I think it's, when we look back at the 1960s and the uprisings and the riots, most of those were triggered by policing, but we don't today think of those as being just about policing, right? That was about a generational uprising for racial justice. And I think that's how we have to understand the moment we're in now, that this is not just about policing, that this is about the failure of our society to take seriously the problems of entrenched racial inequality in American society on a broad front. And so this, the, the solution to this can't possibly be just about fixing the attitude of a few police officers. This has to be about doing something about the way we fund education through local property taxes, the way we've allowed mass homelessness to take root and become just an accepted part of American society, about the continual racial disparities in income in the United States the disparities in how banks and mortgage companies treat African-American communities. All this stuff has to be on the table. Are you hopeful about this? Do you think that can happen? Well, you know, optimism of the will. I I wouldn't be able to get out of bed every morning otherwise. I mean, we're in a moment. This is happening. We've got to try to make it everything we can. So, yes, I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm, I'm not Pollyannish. We have a long road ahead of us. This is about, you know, building fundamental changes in the American society. So it's not going to be easy and we're going to have missteps and we need to learn from our mistakes and, and keep plugging along. So these larger issues, Medicare for all, right? Uh, decent housing for everyone, affordable housing. Um, a job is a human right, uh, some form of guaranteed, uh, annual income, or at least a, a significant raise in the minimum wage. What am I leaving off here? You know, now is the time to think big, right? I think some of the reasons we've had all the, these superficial reforms is that people in communities felt they had no power to ask for what they really wanted. And in this moment, we got to ask for what we really want, right? We got to put it all on the table and quit censoring ourselves because we're afraid of upsetting someone who has wealth and power. We've got a good to- example. Yeah, a good example of that this past week is um, uh, some people put it out there that we've, uh, we need to rename these army bases that are named after uh, Confederate generals. and. Um, you know, people were saying, yeah, you know, maybe it's time we, we did that and let's take down these statues or whatever. And all of a sudden Trump tweeted, absolutely not. Don't even talk about this. <laughs> and very vicious, vicious tweets. And then the Republican Armed Services, the, I mean, they're, they're the majority. The Armed Services Committee in the Senate went ahead and voted through the bill with this amendment that Elizabeth Warren came up with uh, a few weeks ago, I guess. And um, and they're going to go ahead and have the commission to to start to rename this over Trump's objection. And I thought once Trump sent that flurry of tweets to, to you know to put the boot down on this, 
Well, I thought that's the end of that. And no, no, it's really going to happen. And it's got the support of the Pentagon. It's got the support of the, of the generals. And, and now Trump doesn't know what to do because it's, it's the, the train left the station because Democratic senators who are in the minority, who have no control, like you just said, weren't afraid to ask. Go ask for it. Ask for it's 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 look, we do this in our daily lives all the time. How many times have you have people listen to this been told you need to go in and ask for a raise? Don't be afraid. Put it out there. Be bold. I mean, yes, all they can say is no, or you don't get your hundred percent of what you want. But start let's start asking for a hundred percent of what we want. We might be surprised by what what happens. Don't just st- take the position, well, the big bully in the White House is going to put a stop to that. Mitch McConnell, well, that'll never get through. I mean, the more we think like that, I guess then we'll never get anything done. But I, it was a small example this week that I thought, wow, that's that's a good, it, it's a good example of what you just said. Now is the time to ask for exactly what we want. Don't ne- Don't negotiate in advance. Don't, don't meet them halfway before you even put out what it is you want. And I think all of us need to demand these things now and, and go for the, go full tilt on exactly what it is uh, that we want. Don't hold back. There's no such thing as getting half the women to vote. (laughs) There's, there's no such thing that, well, we're going to, we're going to reform Roe v. Wade so that half the women will have control over their bodies. There's no halfway to some of this stuff. That's the mood I'm in right now, that we have, we literally have to just go for it. Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, that's just, great. That's great. So any final words here, Alex? And, and, and I'll go back to the example of um, instead of being called into one of these 25 cities that you go to each year to consult, um, uh, you've just been made the, the temporary mayor of one of these cities. And, and here's your report to the city council uh, and to the people of the city, after you've met with them and you've heard everybody, you've discussed it and, and you take what you've learned. I should mention that, you know, you're also the coordinator of the, the policing and, and uh, social justice project. I believe that's at also at, at uh, Brooklyn college, right? That's right. Um, so you have now been brought in to whatever, pick a city and, and, and here is what you are recommending needs to happen right now, not up in the sky stuff right now in this city. Let's get the police out of the schools. Let's get them out of the mental health business. Let's get them out of the homeless outreach business. I mean, those are three things right away where I think so many people understand, including police officers, that we should not be using police for this. And take the money for that and put it in, take the money out of the police budget and put it into that. That's right. And these are things we can start to do right now. That's right. Alex Vitale, uh, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. Um, Thank you uh, so much. Thank you for writing this book, The End of Policing. And I I just want to say before we wrap up, your publisher, uh, Verso, has um, decided in the moment that we're in to make this book available to everybody for free digitally online that um, and I'll put the link up here on my on my site on my podcast site, and you can click on it. How did this happen? I mean, this is 
I've never heard of a publisher doing this, and I can't believe that. Verso? Yes. Yeah, Verso is a nonprofit publisher that's a part of this movement. And there have been 200,000 downloads of the book from their website in the last two weeks. Wow. So it's available right now. People listening yep. to this can go to, okay, so go to, to Verso, V-E-R-S-O, and I'll have the link on my, on my site. You can download this book for free, The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. And um, I can't thank you enough for the work you do, for writing this book, for your publisher, making it available free of charge to the public. And um, let's all of us who are listening to this um, uh, do something right now, this week. Talk to your city council people, your mayor, go to the next meeting, find out where it is and when it is, make your voices heard. And, um, and Alex, you keep up your good work. Many thanks. You're most welcome, Michael. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. And thank you, everybody who's listened today here. This is Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore. Uh, thank you to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, and our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz. And I will talk to you in the next uh, few days. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.